The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 80 to the chief musician, set to the lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim. Shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Stir up your strength and come and save us. Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry? Against the prayer of your people, you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. You have made us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. Why have you broken down her hedges, so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted than the branch that you made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us when we call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're in Leviticus 1, verses 5 through 17. It's entitled, The Burnt Offering, Part 2. So Leviticus 1, verse 5. He shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priests. Aaron's sons shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. If his offering is of the flocks, of the sheep, or of the goats, as a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall sprinkle his blood all around on the altar. And he shall cut it into its pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water. Then the priest shall bring it all and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Verse 14, and if the burnt sacrifice of his offering to the Lord is of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons. 
the priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out at the side of the altar, and he shall remove its crop with its feathers, and cast it beside the altar on the east side into the place for ashes. Then he shall split it at its wings, but shall not divide it completely. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Unlike the books of Genesis and Exodus, the book of Leviticus started out without any story or historical narrative. It simply and immediately begins with the details of the burnt offering. And the entire chapter is filled with details of it. From this chapter, we'll go on to more detailed offerings. It is therefore something that is, shall we say, very on the mind of God. We're being shown clearly and unambiguously that the God who resides in the most holy place has specific and absolute requirements for the people to follow. The details are minute, and there is no room for any variation in them. Considering this, one would think that by following them, there would be a sense of completion after going through with them. Honey, let's go down to the sanctuary and make our offering. And once we do that, we can go right through the door of the tent, past the holy place, and talk to God at the ark. But of course, this isn't the case. Even the high priest couldn't go in there except when he was directed to. And when he did, it would be as he followed very specific details. The offerings didn't really allow the people to draw any nearer to God except in their hearts, and that itself was only temporary at best. Our text verse today comes from Hebrews chapter 10. It is the first verse. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. The author of Hebrews goes on to explain what he means in this verse. But if someone in Israel simply sat down and thought it through, they would probably be able to figure it out. For us, though, we have such a sacrifice. It is one that can and does perfect us. And how wonderful that is. We don't have to keep going back year after year to make the same offering again and again. Instead, it is a one-time-for-all-time offering, and it is all-encompassing all of it. Every type of sacrifice and offering is fulfilled in it. Thank God for Jesus, who has, in fact, given us both the right and the ability to enter the most holy place. We may not be there now in reality, but if we have come to God through him, we are there positionally. As adopted sons of God, we can petition him as if we are standing right in front of the ark, gazing at the glory which dwells between the cherubim. Let us remember this as we face life's difficulties and struggles. In Christ, we have access to the very throne of God. We don't need to drop off our offering and go back home. Because of Jesus, we are, even now, in the sanctuary and able to revel in what these things only pictured. This is a truth which is revealed in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is a sacrifice from the herd. It's verses 5 through 9. The sacrifice from the herd began in verse 3, but we had to cut that short. Now, as I was out with Jim this past week, I think it was Monday at the hospital, uh, he said, you know, you were giving the sermon and all of a sudden you said we're in verse 4 and I have to cut things 
off right here. And he said, I was so upset. I was watching him. He was taking note after note after note. And I was so proud of him because he's filling in the book of Leviticus with things that he didn't know before. And he says, I was so upset until I looked at my watch. And he said, sure enough, it was a full sermon. You had stopped on time. And I thought, wasn't that wonderful? Because half the people were asleep and the other half were just waiting for it to get done. But here he was thinking that it was just getting started. So thank you for that. And so anyway, as it started last week, we're going to pick up in the middle of the thought with the words of verse five. Verse five says, he shall kill the bull. The verse literally says that he shall kill a son of the oxen. A male only is to be used for the burnt offering. The word for kill here is shachat. It means specifically to slaughter. It was first used when Abraham took the knife in his hand to slay his son Isaac. It was used in the slaughtering of the goat by the sons of Israel with the intent of dipping Joseph's coat of many colors in the blood from it. It is also the word used in the slaying of the Passover lamb. It can speak of slaughtering one's enemies. And it is even used figuratively in Jeremiah 9 verse 8 concerning speaking deceit. Here's what it says there. Their tongue is an arrow shot out. That word, shachat, it speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth but in his heart he lies in wait. Although it is found in these various ways throughout the Old Testament, it is used mostly in Leviticus concerning sacrifices and offerings more than 35 times. The slaying process here and elsewhere is to cut the throat while another person would hold a bull under the cut in order to collect the blood of the animal. And I knew that I would see Linda put her head down when I said that. I knew that was going to happen because I know how she feels about animals. And while we cringe at the thought of this, a few things need to be considered. First, all things are destined to die. No being, person, or animal is exempt. For animals in nature, if you watch any nature program, they generally do not die well. For those under the hand of man, it depends on the one controlling the animal as to how its end will come. But the Bible promotes the care of animals and never their abuse. But it simply demands that they are to die at times, and it is for specific reasons according to the will of the one who created them. No wrongdoing can be found here. These sacrifices were conducted until the time when Christ would come and fulfill what they only pictured. They were a necessary step in understanding what lie ahead. Secondly, we all eat, and I would suggest that probably 99% of the people in this congregation eat meat. And finally, in the death of the animals here, we are to remember the death of the Lord. What the animal endured was quick, rather painless, and without abuse. What the Lord endured covered an entire day. It was fraught with abuse and pain, and it was done for our salvation. As we continue through the many offerings, we need to keep these things in mind. Our modern sensibilities are far too geared toward Fifi and toward Fido to remember that. Though we love our pets, there is a whole wide world of animals out there that all belong to the Lord. What he directs or what he determines for each is according to his will. Verse 5 continues, before the Lord. This male bull was to be slain before or in the face of the Lord there at the prescribed place. This place is always the same, but the terminology will continuously change. Sometimes it will say on the north side of the altar, or it may say at the door of the tent of meeting, or before the tent of meeting, and so on. Or it may even take two of those terms and combine them together. 
Though not recorded in Leviticus, the Psalms tell us that the sacrifice was first bound to the altar. Thus, it is in type and in picture the binding of Christ to the true altar, the cross of Calvary. Here's what it says in Psalm 118. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Verse 5 continues, and the priests, Aaron's sons. The term as is rendered here in the New King James Version is faulty. Instead of saying the priests, Aaron's sons, it should say the sons of Aaron, the priests. It is an exclusive term limiting the priesthood to the sons of Aaron. Otherwise, it could be inferred that other priests from other lines existed, but were not selected from Aaron's sons. The same term is used seven times, five in Leviticus, once in Numbers, and once in Joshua 21, verse 19. It is always consistent in the Hebrew in order to show that the sons of Aaron alone are designated as priests suitable to perform functions under the law of Moses and before the Lord. Verse 5 continues, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar. Again, the translation does not give the correct sense of what is done with the blood. It is not sprinkled, but splashed, scattered, or something like that. The word is zarak. The word for sprinkle is nazah, and it will not be seen in Leviticus until verse 4, 6. And I'm going to remind you of this from time to time so that you have the correct sense of what is happening. If your translation says sprinkle instead of splash, scatter, throw, dash, or something like that, make a note of it. The blood of the animal was taken and literally cast upon the sides of this altar. One does not sprinkle from a bowl. Instead, they cast it forth. There is specificity here which demands attention. The purpose of this blood being splashed on the altar like this expresses one's complete voluntary surrender and readiness to die while yet living. The offerer's blood is what should be poured out. Instead, a substitute, however, is taken in his place. This was, at least in type and in picture, the most important part of the entire rite. Leviticus 17 verse 11 will tell us that the life is in the blood. Therefore, the life is transferred by the hands of the offerer on the substitute to the hands of the priest as he receives it into the bowl where it is then cast out before God. In type, it points to Christ who poured out his blood for us. And yet, as high priest, he then offered it to God. The same word for offer in verse 3 is now translated as bring in this verse here. The offering simply transfers from the offerer to the priest. This was all accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ on his cross. He is the ultimate olah, or burnt offering to the Lord, and he is the priest who brings that offering to God. As this is what Christ did for us, when we are in Christ, then that same yielding on our part is reckoned as acceptable to God. However, even our very best services and offerings to God are still not acceptable without Christ's covering of blood. Only as seen through what he has done can the things that we do be considered in that same acceptable light. As a note, Alfred Adersheim says that there was a red line all the way around the middle of the altar, which marked that above it, the blood of sacrifices to be eaten, below it, that of sacrifices wholly consumed on the altar, okay? 
that blood was to be sprinkled in one place or the other. Now, this is not in the Bible, and I try not to add anything into the Bible, but I want you to know that Alfred Adersheim's commentary is considered an invaluable tool for understanding what occurred in the temple and in the tabernacle rites. So if you ever get a chance to read Adersheim, you will be blessed. I'm not saying that's scriptural. That's just something that he gave as an analysis. Verse 5 continues, that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. The words is by are inserted. It says that door tent meeting. Again, the altar is directly connected to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Despite the laver standing between the two, it is the altar which grants access to move forward towards God. It represents the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, who is the door, as we are told in John 10, verse 9. Each detail, everything that we see now, everything we're going to see, all of it points to Christ. Verse 6, and he shall skin the burnt offering. The actions performed on the sacrifices would be accomplished by the priests, not the offerer. However, the priests could also designate Levites to assist in the work if they were overburdened. This is seen, for example, in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, where it says this, But the priests were too few, so that they could not skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore their brethren, the Levites, helped them until the work was ended, and until the other priests had sanctified themselves. For the Levites were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. The skinning of the animal was done for a couple of reasons. The first was practical, the second was typical. First, the skin had value for clothing and for use in scrolls for writing and among other things. The skins belonged to the priests who officiated at the sacrifice. However, in type, we see that in the slaying of the animal, the life departs. But in the skinning, the old appearance of life is removed. This is then typical of the transformation when Christ, which he went through, at the same time, the transfer of the skin to the priest was an act of transferring Christ's righteousness. Just as God covered Adam and Eve with skins to cover their nakedness, the transfer of the skin gives the same idea. It is emblematic of the temporary covering which is imparted until we are finally glorified and bear Christ's true image. At that time, we too shall appear as he is. Paul speaks of this transformation in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There he says, the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. There's a little bit more involved in the skinning of the animal. We'll get to that in a minute. Verse 6 continues, and cut it into its pieces. After the animal is skinned, it would then be divided according to its parts. The word is nafach. It's a very rare word, which means to divide by joints. An animal would not fully burn if it is not divided in this way. Instead, they'd lay it on the altar and the leg would hang out away from the fire and it would just sit and smolder. By doing it this way, it could be piled onto the altar and fully burned. The dividing of the animal is, in type, looking to the many aspects and offices of Jesus Christ, which are recorded in the Gospels. After his work was accomplished and upon his death, all of these together became a whole burnt offering to God. Each was consumed upon the altar as a satisfaction of the law, which he had fulfilled. Verse 7, the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. 
The special mentioning of the priests concerning the fire and the wood is because no other person could touch the altar as it was considered most holy. If they did, that person became devoted to God. This was recorded in Exodus 30, verse 29. Understanding that, care still needs to be taken here to understand the context. And so we need to go forward to the very first lighting of the fire on this altar. It is found in Leviticus chapter 9. Here's what it says in verses 23 and 24. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. That initial fire was never to go out, as is seen in Leviticus 6 verse 13. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. That initial fire was lit by the Lord. From that time on, it was never, never allowed to go out. Even when the altar was transferred from place to place, there is no stated provision that it would be extinguished. The fire is the Lord's doing. And so to put fire on the altar in this verse signifies feeding the fire with wood. When an offering was made, the wood would then be arranged for such an offering. This is a picture of the consequences of sin. It is emblematic of the eternal fire of the lake of fire, where all sin will finally be consumed. Either one's sin is consumed by Christ and thus forever removed from the offender, or their sin will be consumed when they are cast into that final place of God's judgment. There are no other options. I'm sorry. The pictures are given to show us the consequences of our own choices. Verse 8. Then the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. Again, only the sons of Aaron, who were the priests of Israel, were allowed to touch or work with the altar. They would take the animal and lay its parts out in a particular order, which is believed to have resembled as closely as possible the order in which the animal was when he was alive. The head and the fat are explicitly named because they together with the pieces complete the whole animal with the exception of its blood and its hide. Again, it looks to Christ's death. He died wholly upon the cross rather than some other type of execution, such as being drawn and quartered or beheaded or something like that. His entire body was an offering to God as a whole burnt offering. The blood and the hide were accepted because the life is in the blood and because he was so marred that he was otherwise unrecognizable, as is recorded by the prophet Isaiah. The word for fat here is peder. It comes from a primitive root meaning to be greasy. Thus, it is the suet or the fat. This would increase the flame and thus the picture of judgment we are to see. Even this was offered wholly and completely to God. Verse 9, but he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. These parts are specifically said to be washed for two reasons. The first is because of the word translated as burn in this verse, and the second is because of what that then pictures. The innards of the animal were washed as a picture of the inward purity of Christ. There was no defilement in him at all. The kera, or leg, specifically signifies from the knee down to the ankle. This is the part of the body that would pick up worldly defilement. This is seen in the washing of the feet throughout the Bible as symbolic of washing away worldly defilement. This is why Jesus said in John 13, verse 10, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. Abraham understood this and brought water to wash the Lord's feet when he arrived at the tent in Genesis 19, verse 2. For this reason, the legs along with the entrails were washed. 
the animal pictures the purity of Christ offered up to God as a perfect offering. Verse 9 going on, And the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. The word burn here is not the regular word which means to consume. Instead, it is katar. It means to make sacrificial smoke. It is the word used to describe the burning of incense. This offering, picturing Christ in all ways, is an Ola Ishe Reach Nechoach Leyehovah, or a burnt sacrifice by fire, a sweet savor to Jehovah. Paul explains this for us in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. A burnt offering, a bull is presented at the altar. It has value, and it could be used for other things. But in presenting this bull, I shall not falter, for in giving it to the Lord, my heart rejoices and sings. For to him it is a sweet-smelling aroma, pleasant and nice, and my heart delights in offering such as this. It is a perfect bull, and thus an acceptable sacrifice. It is as if sending to heaven an aromatic kiss. Bless the Lord who has accepted my offering. Bless the Lord who has received me because of it. He has accepted from my hand this proffering. To him through the bull, my soul, I do submit. Our second thought today is a sacrifice from the flock. It's verses 10 through 13. Verse 10, if his offering is of the flocks, of the sheep, or of the goats, as a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring a male without blemish. The bull was the more expensive animal, and so it would normally be the richer person who offered one. Now, an allowance for the less wealthy is provided. The offering could be either of the sheep or of the goats, but it was still to be a male and without blemish. The sheep would have been the preferred animal, but the goat was also considered acceptable. And both, like the bull, also are seen as types of Christ elsewhere in Scripture. The bull looks to Christ's strength and in his, his enduring labors. The sheep looks to his innocence, harmlessness, and quiet patience. The goat looks to his human nature, where he was seen in the likeness of sinful flesh, though he was himself without sin. However, our sin penalty was imputed to him. Because the directions would be the same for these animals as were given for the bull, they're not repeated. Only those requirements which further define the instructions are given, such as in the next verse, verse 11. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. The north side is now specified as the place of slaughter. There is a reason for this. In verse 16, the ashes and the refuse were to the east of the altar. Also, the laver was to the west, and the ascent to the altar was said by Flavius Josephus to be on the south. If Josephus is correct, and he certainly was, the north was then the most conducive place to be used for this purpose. The north being set aside in this manner, though, is probably, more importantly, a picture of where Christ would later die. In Psalm 48, we read these words, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, on the sides of the north. Mount Zion being on the sides of the north, meaning on the north side of Jerusalem, would then place the cross of Jesus Christ in this spot. Thus, the slaying of the animal on the north side of the altar was an anticipatory look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ dying on the north side of the city of Jerusalem. And further, the word for north is Saphon, 
which means hidden or dark, and even it gives the sense of being gloomy. It comes from tzafan, which gives the idea of hiding or even treasure or treasuring up something. The death of the animal, symbolic of the work of Jesus Christ, was the dark side of his ministry, and yet it is in death that he was treasured and protected, having fulfilled the law. Now for those in Christ, we are hidden in him and likewise treasured until the day of redemption. This is alluded to several times in scripture, such as in Psalm 27. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. The words he shall hide me is tzaphan. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. Paul also says in Colossians 3, verse 3, that we have died with him, meaning Christ, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Every single detail, once again, points to Christ Jesus, all of it. Verse 11 continues, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall sprinkle its blood all around on the altar. As before, the blood was splashed, thrown, dashed, or cast, but it was not sprinkled. Please put a note of correction in your King James Version. Verse 12, And he shall cut it into its pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. In what is known as a zugma, one verb here is used for the action involving more than one noun. The action of cutting is referring to both the pieces and to the head and the fat. This is not uncommon in Hebrew, nor is it uncommon in English. If I say that John lost his wallet and his temper, I'm using a zugma. This is what is occurring here in verse 12. It is the same action as that of which occurred with the bull in the earlier verse, though. Verse 13, But he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water. Then the priest shall bring it and burn it all on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The same procedures for the sheep or the goat were to be followed as for that of the bull. The requirements do not change based on status or on wealth. All must be perfect. All must die in the same manner. All must be purified in the same way. And all were to be considered a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. Each animal pictures Christ in a different way. But in the end, each pictures the same perfect Christ. A lamb, precious and pure, is given, for to my God I desire to provide my very best. He has brought me to the place of abundant living, and to please him is my heart-filled quest. How good and pleasant it is to offer the lamb. I pray that he is pleased with the condition of my heart. I love my Lord God, the great I am, and so to him this precious lamb I do impart. May the Lord accept this offering in my place, and look with favor upon me as I go my way. May the Lord turn to me his glorious, shining face, and may he bless my steps each and every day. Our third thought today is a sacrifice of birds. It's verses 14 through 17. Verse 14, And if the burnt sacrifice of his offering to the Lord is of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons. In contrast to the four-legged animals, an offering of birds could be made. In this, only two were allowed. The first is the tor, or turtle dove. That's where the name Tarshish comes from, if you remember the book of Jonah. The second is the Yonah, or dove, which is Jonah's name. Okay, so there's a little connection to the last book we did. Also here, it is termed a pigeon. And so in all, five types of animals are allowed. Five, being the number of grace in the Bible, is fitting that this many have been allowed. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is realized in the five allowable burnt offerings. 
And interestingly, they correspond to the five that were requested of Abraham in Genesis 15 with these words. So he said to him, bring me here a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Allowing these birds is an exceptional act for the care of the poor among the people. This provision sets the law of Moses apart from the others in this regard. The turtle doves are said to appear in large numbers in early April and are easily captured before migrating again. The pigeons, or doves, are common in the land and have several broods each year, making them easy to capture when young and abundant enough to do so. They are also easy to keep and to maintain. As you can see, there is no restriction on age for the turtle doves because they were always in the prime of life during their short time of migration in the land. However, pigeons were only considered in the prime when young. If a man would reject an older pigeon as a male, it would be wrong to offer it to the Lord. These birds picture Christ in their simplicity, purity, and humility. But further, the affection of the dove for their mate makes them a splendid picture of Christ who is so affectionate for his people that he came to dwell among them and give himself for them. Verse 15, the priest shall bring it to the altar. There's no laying of hands on the bird, probably because the bird was symbolically or the guilt was symbolically transferred when he handed the bird to the priest. Okay, so you have the transfer of guilt even without laying your hands on top of it. Verse 15 continues, ring off its head. The word ring here is translated from a word malak, which is found only here and in Leviticus 5 verse 8. It's not really known what is being said. It could mean either ring its neck but not take off its head, or it could mean to completely sever the head. Scholars argue no one is really sure. It seems that what is done with it later would necessitate ringing off the head completely, but verse 5-8 complicates that notion. I would suggest that the head remains on, but it's just loosely hanging on. Either way, the bird dies at the altar, just as all the other animals do. Verse 15 continues, and burn it on the altar. The order here does follow the Hebrew. It says that it is to be burned after its neck is wrung, but before the blood is said to be drained out. The order then is reversed from what must actually occur. Despite this, the same word is used here as for the four-legged animals. It is an offering of sweet smell rather than merely the burning up of a sacrifice. And thus, even the small bird pictures Christ who was offered up to God in this manner. Verse 15 continues, Its blood shall be drained out at the side of the altar. The word for drained here is matzah, which means to suck out. And so by implication, it means to drain or even to squeeze out. As there was not enough blood to be gathered into a basin, and due to the small size of the bird, the blood was simply pressed out of it and onto the altar's side. Okay. Once again, the life is in the blood, and so it forms a picture of Christ whose blood was shed for sinful man. Even the poorest of our species, none are exempt from his grace. Verse 16, and he shall remove its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east side into the place for ashes. A couple new words in the Bible here. The first is the crop or murah. It is only found here and it signifies the alimentary canal. It comes from the word ra'ah, which means something conspicuous. And thus it is the part of the bird which is prominently displayed. The second is the notsah or plumage. It is seen just four times here in the book of Job, and twice in the book of Ezekiel. Like the animals which were skinned, the birds had their feathers removed, signifying the complete change in appearance. 
Just as Christ was marred beyond recognition, so were both the animals and the birds. The third word is desen, or ashes. However, that comes from the verb dashen, which means to grow fat. And thus it is the ashes of fat, not ashes in general. In all, the bird had its crop and its feathers removed, and then those were cast to the east side of the altar. This was the place that was furthest removed from the Holy of Holies, and it thus signifies that place where uncleanness is, it being the place furthest from where the Lord dwells. Why is that significant? Because we've seen in the book of Jonah and elsewhere that the east is the place of disobedience, of wandering, etc. And guess where the Kidron Valley is in relation to Jerusalem? It is east, and that's where all of the horrible things were cast away from Jerusalem. So you have a picture of Christ dying on the cross on the north side of Jerusalem, the east. Everything keeps pointing us to Christ. As you read the Bible, just keep asking, how does this show me Jesus? And it will come alive. Because the book of Leviticus otherwise would just, you know, you read it and you think, I got to get done with this. But when you think that Jesus is in every single word, in every single sentence, in every single paragraph, it becomes a treasure and a delight to read. Verse 17, then he shall split it at its wings, but shall not divide it completely. What this is saying is that he is to grab the wings of the bird and pull them so that the bird is split, exposing its insides. But the bird is not to be pulled completely apart. This then answers to the placement of the larger animals on the altar in a set manner. The animal would be too big to burn otherwise, but it was to be still in an order which showed that it was one animal. The bird, being smaller, did not need to be divided up. It remained whole, which makes, again, the same picture of Christ as the animals did before. Christ's body remained intact, but the inward parts were exposed, revealing only sincerity and truth. This is what David referred to concerning the condition of one who pleases God when he said these words, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. That's Psalm 51, verse 6. Verse 17 continues, And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. Once again, we're reminded that this is a sweet-smelling burning with this special word that's being used, katar, or fragrant like incense. It's not just something consumed. The fire is the Lord's, the wood is the cross, and the sacrifice is pure, undefiled, and acceptable. And so, verse 17 finishes with these words, it is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The same words are used again as we're seen in verse 9 and in verse 13. The repetition indicates that the offering of the poorest person is just as acceptable to the Lord as that of the richest man with the most splendid ox. The sacrifice comes solely down to the heart and the intent of the offerer. This is evident in the rite which is conducted and what is considered acceptable concerning these offerings. The one who offers was acknowledging that they were spiritually dying in this offering, but that a substitute was requested to be reckoned in his place. Thus, they were in essence uniting to the Lord through this vicarious act, placing their sin guilt or their burden or whatever they're placing on this animal and it going off to the animal and then the animal is killed. It's a vicarious act. In turn, they were then expected to conduct their lives in the manner which the offering was accepted. To not do so would nullify the purpose of the offering. This is seen in the words of Isaiah, words which are repeated numerous times in the Old Testament and which are then repeated in the New Testament as well. Here's what it says in Isaiah 1 verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? 
I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. The Lord wearied of their offerings because their offerings were wearisome. There was no heart in them. The people treated their status as one which was deserved. One who deserves favor does not need grace, nor do they need a substitute to make them acceptable to God. But the very fact that the various offerings were made was intended to show them that they needed more than what they inherently possessed. We will see all kinds of offerings in the pages ahead as we continue through the book. But for the burnt offering, let us consider it one more time. The various aspects of the offering are that it was, one, brought volitionally by the offerer. Two, it was offered in a vicarious manner, meaning that the placing of the hands on the animal was intended to relay that the animal was taking the place of the offerer. Three, the animal was slaughtered and its blood, evidence of the ending of its life, was poured out. And then four, the offering was wholly burnt up on the altar. From these acts, the people should have grasped that there was a disconnect between them and God. The very fact that an offering is made showed them this. If someone was inherently acceptable to him, then any offering of this type would be absolutely pointless. Further, the fact that such offerings needed to be repeated, as did the other types of offerings that we're going to see, shows us that they could never truly cause to happen what they were intended to cause to happen. If they did, then one such offering would be made, and it would never be made again. But such was not the case. This was therefore true both on an individual level and on a national level. Neither was made perfect by the mandates of the law, which showed them that perfection was necessary and that they were in fact imperfect. Understanding this, there's the truth which could have been deduced by anyone who simply sat down and thought it through to its logical conclusion. If nobody was perfect, as is indicated by the need for sacrifices, and if nobody was made perfect, as is indicated by the need for continued sacrifices, then only a perfect person could fulfill what these sacrifices were intended to mean. Why a person? Because the animals didn't work. Why a perfect person? Because anyone who needed to offer a sacrifice other than himself was obviously imperfect, and all had to offer sacrifices other than themselves. Logically, there had to be an end to these things for perfection to come. When Jeremiah promised a new covenant, it meant that the old covenant at some point must be fulfilled, and thus it meant that a perfect person was anticipated who would fulfill it. This man then would be the fulfillment of each and every one of these sacrifices and offerings that we're looking at. If such is not the case, then he didn't fulfill the law, but fulfill it he did. This is why we look for Jesus in each and every precept on each and every page. In so doing, we seek and then we find the one who came and did what God promised would occur. Now the burnt offering is behind us. Next will come the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and then the trespass offering. And from there, we'll go on to more offering details. If we can just keep on remembering to look for Jesus, to look for Jesus in every word and in every verse, these things will go quickly, they will educate perfectly, and they will satisfy completely. Otherwise, this long list of offerings is tedious, and it's seemingly irrelevant to our Christian walk. But understanding them will open up our life in Christ in a much, much deeper way. Now, really quickly, as I do each week, because I want you to 
have this tied into New Testament theology in its fullness. The Bible is showing us, as I just explained, that the law of Moses could not perfect anyone. The fact that they needed to make an offering showed that they were imperfect. The fact that those offerings continued year after year or any time that they committed a sin showed that they were imperfect. Therefore, the law of Moses has no ability to bring us back to our Heavenly Father. None. It is simply a stage in God's redemptive workings, showing us our desperate need for something else. And that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who was without sin when he was born, and he lived without sin all the way through his life. That's recorded in the Gospels. That's the purpose of giving us the Gospel narrative, is to show us that he lived perfectly under the law without sinning. And then he gave his life up as these offerings here are picturing for us. The transfer is made when we receive Jesus Christ, just as if we are putting our hand on one of those animals. The blood is shed. Our Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, died on the cross. And then from there, the blood is cast out, proving the death. And this is what's being seen. He died for you, proving that he is the only one capable of taking away our sin. And how did he prove it? By coming out of the grave. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, if the wages of sin is death and he came back to life, then that means he had no sin of his own. And your sin was taken away in that vicarious act. So you are now in Christ and God is not counting men's sins against them when they are in Christ Jesus. The plan is so perfect that every time I contemplate it, it astonishes me. All I have to do each week is be a little down, a little depressed, and I think, oh. And then I just go back and I think it through again. Everything is fulfilled in Christ. Every need is met, and it, the plan is perfect, and it is glorious. And now it's time for us, if we have received Jesus Christ, to go on to living holy lives for him, as Paul describes each week when he does opens us in, in the service. He's talking about rewards and losses. But you get no rewards, and you get only losses if you do not receive Jesus Christ. So please do that today. Receive him, call on him, be purified by him. Okay, that's what you need to do in your life. Our closing verse comes from Romans chapter 12. It's verses one and two. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He's already saved you if you've called on him. Now it's time for you to perform. Do it, all right? Think on those verses. Contemplate them. And as you go through your life and you do something stupid, confess it to the Lord and move on. And keep talking to him, praying to him, letting him know that you are there and that you are relying on him. And that is where rewards come from, is by that simple communication of faith from your heart to your creator, okay? Next week, we have Leviticus 2, 1 through 16 then. Here comes a completely different type of proffering. It's entitled, The Grain Offering. That'll be our third Leviticus sermon, okay? And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. I got a poem that's a little longer than last week, but it's not terribly long. We got one coming up that's like 30 some verses, so get at your pillows on that week. But this one's only, uh, what's that? Uh, anyways, 5 through 17, 12 verses, 13 verses. 
It's called the burnt offering. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, next to do, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar, as I am instructing you. That is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting, this task they shall be completing. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces, so shall they handle this proffering. The sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. In this they shall not falter. Then the priests Aaron's sons shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat also in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. There it shall go. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, pleasing and nice. If his offering is of the flocks, of the sheep, or of the goats as a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring a male without blemish. Only this will suffice. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. Then the priests, Aaron's son, shall sprinkle its blood all around on the altar according to this word. And he shall cut it into its pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar where the fire is at. But he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water. Then the priest shall bring it all and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire or a sweet aroma to the Lord, an offering both pleasing and nice. And if the burnt sacrifice of his offering to the Lord is of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons according to these words. Then the priest shall it to the altar bring, wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out at the altar side. In these duties he shall not falter. And he shall remove its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east side into the place for ashes. To these instructions he shall abide. Then he shall split it at its wings, but shall not divide it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar. On the wood that is on the fire it shall burn sweetly. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, such as I do require. Lord God, in ourselves we are not acceptable to you, but you have made a way for it to come about through the offering of your Son, who is faithful and true. We can approach you without fear or doubt. Thank you for this great thing you have done, and we shall thank you even unto eternal days. Marvelous, wonderful, stupendous is Jesus Christ, your Son, and so to you, through him, we shall offer eternal praise. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that there is Christ found on every single sentence of this book of Leviticus. It's a comfort to know because otherwise we read it and it's hard to comprehend what's going on and why they had to go through these things. But you were slowly and surely showing us something, something more wonderful than we could possibly imagine. And we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross of Calvary, which fulfills these types and pictures and which brings us complete freedom from our sin. Not just a temporary stay of your wrath, but complete freedom from our sin. What a great God you are to do this. And Lord, we certainly pray that um, um, Mike would be okay with his kidney stone and that that would pass quickly and that he would be back in fine shape. And we thank you for all the health that is uh, found in the church today instead of the hacks and the coughs and the many pains that we've had over the past few weeks. And we pray for Graham over in Scotland, who cannot be with us today because he's still in the hospital. We would pray that he would be restored to happiness and to full life really quickly. I know this is debilitating on Jennifer, who's who's trying to keep things together while he's in the hospital. So please hear our prayers about that. And Lord, uh, search our hearts, search our minds, 
find out those things which we have forgotten to pray for and uh, or that we just neglect to do so for whatever reason and respond according to your wisdom. You are a great God and we know you hear every prayer that is made just because you you care that much for us. So we love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do so in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen.